All right. Page 34. You'll see this, uh, this diagram there with Adam's family. And we're not talking about the TV show or the movies. But we were, we were all in Adam. And, uh, you know, we talked about this a, brief, a bit last night, about how, you know, we had all these different generations. There was Seth and, and all the people down the line. And then eventually we've got who? You and me. So go ahead and write me in that circle there. Because when we were born, we were born into Adam's family. Now, I still remember every time one of my girls was born, someone always asked the, the question, who does she look like? And the reason being is because you inherit certain things. I don't, I don't fully understand how that, you know, my daughter would have my eyes and my ears because I thought I still had them, but, but apparently they've got them. So they inherit certain, certain physical traits. But have you ever noticed when they start to grow up, they also inherit some of the solical traits, the personality traits? And then you cringe at that idea, but they do that. Well, the same is true also in terms of that we've inherited some spiritual traits from our father Adam. So what I want to do is I want to take a look at three verses in Romans 5 to discover what inheritance we receive simply by being in this family. So in Romans 5, in verse 17, it says, For by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Meaning, death reigns over everybody that was in Adam. Isn't that a pretty picture? Meaning that death has dominion, it has control, it has authority over us. There is no life in here, it is empty. Death reigning over us was reigning over us, our spirit, soul, and body. Our body is marching towards death. My eyes don't see as well as they, they used to. I tend to wake up with more aches and pains as the weeks go by. My body is marching towards death. But also in the soul, we were experiencing death. Anxiety, despair, frustration, um, fear, all sorts of things. That's death to the soul. But then also over our spirit. Death is reigning over our spirit. That we were separated from God. We were without God. And so we didn't have the love from God. We didn't have the acceptance from God tangibly to experience. So death was reigning over us through and through. Do you get the ugly picture of that? Well, in verse 18, it says, Through the one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Very specific. The one transgression. Adam's sin in the garden resulted in condemnation, not just to Adam, but to all of us. You and I were condemned when we showed up on planet Earth. And the word condemnation is really means that you were judged, you were found insufficient, and you were cast off. Isn't that a pretty picture? This is why Jesus, when he talks to Nicodemus, he says, Nicodemus, I have not come to condemn the world. Do you know why? You are already condemned. You and I were condemned the moment Adam ate from that tree. The world already is condemned. It's not going to be condemned. It already is condemned. The judgment's already been passed. And they've already been determined insufficient and rejected. Pretty ugly? It's going to get worse. Verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. The word made means to be constituted, to be formed. From the very inside out, you and I have been made a sinner. How many sins did you and I have to commit to become a sinner? None. Zero. You were born that way. That's how you came pre-wired. It took no actions on your behalf for this to be true of you. 
Now, would it be fair, fair to say if death's reigning over you, you're condemned and you're a sinner, that you're going to produce sins? Absolutely. Darn right you are. And so Jesus comes along and He forgives those sins, but if that's all He did, what would you be left with? Death still reigns over you. You'd still be condemned and you'd still be a sinner. You see, salvation's got to be more than forgiveness of sins. It's much more than just the death of Jesus. You see, in Colossians 1, 13, for He delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And so what God does at the cross is He took the old me, the old you, the one that death reigned over, the one that was condemned, the one that was a sinner, and He put Him on that cross. He crucified Him. He buried Him. And then He raised Him up, but now as a new me. This is what it means to be born again. I thought born again was just Christianese. It just was language we used in the church that didn't really mean much, just other than that you prayed a prayer. But to be born again, I've discovered, means to be born again. Go figure. That's what God meant. And your born again experience involved your death, your burial, and your resurrection as someone new and someone different. And this new me is now in a whole new family, in Christ's family. One that's got eternal life, a life with no beginning and no end. But now that I'm in this family, I get a whole new and different inheritance. Now, to start with, what do you notice is different between this family and this family? How many generations separate me from Christ? None. Someone rightly said, God doesn't have any grandchildren. He just has children. Jesus is our older brother. God's our father. That's the intimacy we have here now. And what happens is we now become joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs versus co-heirs. You see, a co-heir would be where you get an equal portion. So in my family, there are four of us. I have two older brothers and a younger sister. And so if we were to co-heirs, my oldest brother would get 25%. My next brother would get 25%. I'd get 40 and my sister would get 10 My parents didn't fall for it either. Uh, We'd all get 25%. We'd all get an equal portion under a co-heir system. But under a joint heir system, it means that my brother would get 100%, my next brother would get 100%, I'd get 100%, and even my poor sister would get 100%. We'd all get it all. And we are joint heirs with Christ, meaning everything that God has bestowed upon Christ, who does He share that with? Do we get a piece of it? You get the whole deal, the whole shooting match. Let's show that. We're going to look at the same three verses that talked about death, condemnation, and being made sinners. We're going to look at those exact same three verses, but now the second half of those verses. Because what Paul was doing here was he's comparing and contrasting to what happens to those in Adam's family and to those that were happened, that happened to be in Christ's family. And as a result of our faith, God rescued us from Adam and placed us into Christ, into His family. So let's see what the inheritance is. Romans 5.17 Much more, those who receive the abundance of the grace and abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So under Adam's family, death reigned over us, but now in Christ's family, you and I, we reign in life. There's victory in life. There's power 
in life. There's abundance in life. Whereas before death was over us, now we're reigning in life. We're reigning in His strength, reigning in His power. And so our bodies, although they're still marching towards death because we have physical bodies and we're looking forward to getting heavenly bodies, our bodies still begin to be to heal themselves because they're no longer under carrying the same stress and load as they were before. Our soul is being restored. And so I'm starting to find peace and joy and hope. But most of all, my spirit has life because now I know I'm loved. I have that acceptance, I have that worth, I have that value, that sense of belonging, that sense of significance, that I'm loved by Jesus. So I begin to reign in life now. Romans 5.18, Even so through the one act of righteousness there resulted justification. Literally, the word justification just means to be made righteous. So it results in righteousness or acceptance of life to all men. So you and I have been made righteous. We've been made accepted. Who made us righteous? Was it by following the law, by following the rules, by being good people? It was the work of the cross, completely through and through. And then finally, Romans 5 and 19, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. What do we call righteous people? We call them saints. Know what that makes you? You're St. Paul. That's who you are. You're a saint. You know what the word saint means? Holy one. That is who you are. But you know what just drives me crazy? When Christians call themselves sinners saved by grace. Do you know where that is in the Bible? Back in Hezekiah. <laughs> Second opinions. It's not in there. Nowhere in Scripture does God ever refer to you and I as a sinner saved by grace. Do you know why? Because you're a saint. You used to be a sinner. And yes, you are saved by grace, but now you're a saint. You know, the, the verse 2 Corinthians 5.17, if you, anyone in Christ is a new creation, if you ever see that verse on artwork, what do they typically picture it with? A butterfly. And with the butterfly, you know, they start off as a little caterpillar. And then they go and they build their cocoon. And you know what happens within that cocoon? If you were to slice open the cocoon in the middle of that transformation process, you know what you would find? You wouldn't find a, a caterpillar going, Oh, ooh, I'm not ready yet. You would find black ooze. Because that caterpillar actually dies and decomposes. That caterpillar ceases to exist. Until finally something new and different is formed and created. And then it bursts forth out of the cocoon and we see it fly and we say, oh, look at the caterpillar saved by the cocoon. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Because that's not who you are. You are a saint. You are a holy one. And I really believe this in my heart that when we call ourselves or refer to ourselves as sinners saved by grace, A, it's not humble, it's full of pride, but B, it insults God. It insults the work that He has done. Because the reality is, you can't get any holier than you are right now. Think about this for a second. Moses shows up, burning bush, walks up, and God says in the burning bush, what? Take off your shoes, because I just swept the place, and I don't want you tracking in the muck. Is that what he says? Take off your shoes, because you are standing on holy ground. 
Well, what was it about that ground that was so holy? Was it this? It was the right kind of bush, the right shape, the right amount of fruit, the right type of bush, with the right amount of sunlight coming and the right amount of wind and water falling on it. What was it about that bush that made that ground so holy? God was in the bush. It had nothing to do with the bush, right? So, in fact, could we not say that if it was a bush that was three meters this way, four meters that way, a bush that had little fruit, no fruit, a bush that was young, a bush that was old, a bush that was dying, a bush that had a disease, that no matter what the bush was, if God was in the bush, the bush was holy. In fact, that part of that parcel of ground in that moment in time of history was the most holiest place in all the earth at that time. Would you agree? Where does God live today? You know what that makes you? The holiest people on the face of this earth. So you better take your shoes off. You don't have to do that. But you are the holiest people on the face of the earth. You can't get any more holy. You can't get less holy because the holiness has nothing to do with you. You're just the bush. It has everything to do with God who's in the bush. God who's in you. He has, he has given to you and I the holiness of God. That's the holiness you have. And so when you say you're a sinner saved by grace, you are discounting, you are insulting what God has done. You are ignoring the fact that He crucified the sinner, He buried the sinner, and raised you up as a saint. And I think that's why, because we don't understand what happened. We don't understand the cross. We come to see that we're a sinner, which was good because it led to salvation. And then we hear we're a saint, and so we mix the two. We become a sinner slash saint. If I do good, I'm a saint. If I do bad, I'm a sinner. But that's not what God did. He crucified the sinner and buried him. And He raised up a saint, someone new. That's who you are. Uh, What does it mean then by saying... God's saying, be holy for I am holy. Does that mean you saved? No, I don't think so. I think it's that's the way we're to live. That's the way we're to live. Because He's holy. But it's not you have to not become holy, because He's already done that. In um in Hebrews ten ten, it says, By one offering for all time. So how long does all time last for? Forever. He has sanctified you and I. And the word sanctified is where we get the word saint from, made holy. So for all time, by that one offering on the cross, he, he has made you and I perfect, complete, holy, sanctified. Mission accomplished. Remember what he said on the cross? It is almost done. You just got to do this, this, and this, and this, and then we'll be there. It is finished. Loosely translated, there is nothing left for you and I to do. It's done. I was going to say really be holy as I am holy uh, oftentimes we see that as a command but rather it's not a command it's a benediction sure but it might also be a command since because you are I mean if I go to a dog and I see a dog and that dog starts acting like a cat you know it's chasing mice and trying to climb trees and playing with balls of yarn and I say listen you're a dog okay dogs bark Dogs pee on fire hydrants. Dogs chase cats. Dogs chase cars, and they don't know what they'll do if they ever caught one, but that's what you're to do. So go chase cars. Go bark. Be a dog. What have I told him to do? Go be who you are. 
And that's what the New Testament scriptures are encouraging us to do. You go and you read the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters of Ephesians are all about this identity, who you are, what God has done. And then the last three, chapter four onward, are all about now living that way. And it's amazing the number of times in those chapters, four, five, and six, that Paul reminds us, walk as children of light, for that's who you are. Live this way, because this is who you are. This is the way you are. Now live that way. So it's not trying to be something you're not. He's just saying, be who you are, and this is who you are. That's what the New Testament commands are about. That's why it's beneficial to read the wisdom and so forth, because it's telling us, who we now are, because we now contain the life of Christ within us. All right, let's try some things here. This statement here, my actions or behavior may or may not accurately reflect my true spiritual identity. Is that true of the unbeliever? The unbeliever, the dirty, rotten sinner, is it possible that their actions may look good? Can they give the charity? Can they love people with a hug and and words of encouragement? So in that case, their actions not truly reflect in the fact that they're a sinner. But does that change the fact that they're a sinner? No, that's who they are. So what if I put this statement up here? Is it possible that the saint, holy and righteous, that their actions may not truly reflect their spiritual identity? Absolutely. Well, what about this statement? My actions, good or bad, will not change my true spiritual identity. No matter how many good works... No matter how many little old ladies this person helps cross the street, no matter how many times they give the charity or they they help people, rescue people, they serve, no matter how many things they do, will it ever change the fact that they're a sinner? No. Well, what if I put that statement up here? That as a saint, as a child of God, that your actions, good or bad, cannot change the fact that you're still a saint. You see, how many actions did it take on your behalf to become a saint? Zero. It's incredible to the church of Corinth, a very immoral church, extremely immoral, so much so that the Gentiles and the unbelievers are looking at them and saying, ooh, that's not so good. Paul writes to them. And in the opening lines, opening verses of chapter 1, he says to the church of Corinth, who are saints by calling. He calls them holy ones and saints. He then goes on for the next 15 chapters, admonishing them for not living like saints, But they are saints nonetheless. That's who they are. That's who you are. You're holy. You can't get any holier. You can't be less holy because it's not based upon what you do or don't do, but based solely on what Jesus Christ has done and given to you. So the means of righteousness at the bottom of page 34, it's by birth. It's part of our inheritance. So your birth certificate would read the fact that God has bestowed upon you the fact that you're righteous. That you're holy. Because it's not based on what you do or don't do. My little girls, they've been born into my family. And they may not act like me, uh, like they belong in my family at times. In fact, they may look at the neighbors and say, those people are better and cooler. And they may go and t- spend all their time with them. They may talk like them. They may dress like them. But at the end of the day, who do they belong to? They're my children. They got my blood and my DNA in them. In the same way, you and I, we are now children of God. And no matter what you do, you cannot change that. It's a gift. Romans 5.17, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Can you earn a gift? If you do, it's no longer a gift, it becomes a wage. 
But righteousness is a gift. So by definition, you cannot earn it. It's impossible. It's given to you. So what's our part? We need to receive it. It's interesting. There are three different words in the Greek for receive. All different implications. There's one receiving where you're just kind of sitting there and then somebody throws it in your lap. And it just kind of shows up there. It's kind of what, like Erica was, I was trying to receive the pen the other night from Erica. She just tossed it at me. I, I didn't have to do anything. It just shows up there. Then there's another kind of receiving where you have to wrestle for it and take it by force. So if I want it, I'm going to now yank it out of your hands and I will hold on to it and it's mine. But then there's a third kind of receiving where it's offered, but you now need to lay hold of it. Guess which word Paul uses? He uses the one that is offered, and you and I now need to lay hold of it. And so this gift of righteousness is there. It's yours for the taking. Will you accept it? Will you receive it? And then finally, it's all about obedience. And people say, aha, I knew it was about obedience. It is. It really is about obedience, just not yours. Even so, through the obedience of the one. Who's the one? Jesus Christ. The many will be made righteous. If it was up to you and I in our obedience, we would be in a world of trouble because we can never be obedient enough. But how long will Jesus be obedient? Forever. So we're in good shape. Okay, let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 5.21, an incredible verse. It says that Jesus... Or God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. I want you to think back to a little bit with that, that water illustration with law and grace. But now I've got water on one side, and it's pure water. It's life. And then my other glass, I've got arsenic, poison. Jesus is life. You and I are poison. We're death. And what God did, He took Jesus, who knew no sin, to be completely pure... And He poured you and I into Jesus. He didn't just place your sins on Jesus. He placed you and I into Jesus. And so us, this poison, this death, being placed into Jesus, guess what we made Him? We made Him sin. So He, God, made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The righteousness you and I have is the very righteousness of God. The very acceptance of God, the very perfection of God is what you have. Ephesians 4.24 says you've been made in the likeness of God. Romans 6 verse 5 that we looked at last night, you would have be raised in the likeness of His resurrection. We have the very righteousness of God right now. The problem is we've been falling for all kinds of deceptions regarding righteousness. Now what's a deception? It's more than just a lie. A deception is a lie wrapped in truth. Meaning on the outside, it looks really, really good. But at the core of it, it's a lie. And if the truth sets us free, what will the lie do? Put us in bondage. And so here are some deceptions that have been taught about righteousness. One, it's the blackboard erasure theory. This is the one that I thought of for a long time. So what would happen is throughout the day, every time you sinned, uh, you know, Jesus would come and he would write your sin on the blackboard. And then at the end of the day, you would have to pray and then he would wipe your sins away. And then as you prayed and confess your sins, you'd have the clean blackboard. But even as a kid, I realized there was a problem with this. 
Because as a young child, chances of me passing in my sleep were rather slim. I was probably going to die at about three o'clock in the afternoon when I ran out in front of a car chasing after the ball. And so I realized that at three o'clock in the afternoon, I would have had many hours to sin. I had a younger sister. So I realized I was in trouble. So I discovered that, you know, or I thought that there was something called five-minute grace. And this is how five-minute grace works. Because I received Christ as my Savior, after I die, I'm given five minutes with Jesus in front of the blackboard to confess my sins. Now, you only have five minutes, so you can't let the list grow long. Because if it's five minutes and 30 seconds, you're in trouble. Hence the reason to keep short accounts, because you only got five minutes. And so in that five minutes, you confess your sins, he'd wash it clean, and then away you go into heaven. If you don't receive Christ, sorry, no grace, no five minutes. You know what I discovered? That's not in the Bible. <laughs> go figure. Who knew, right? There's no such thing as a blackboard erasure theory. And the reason being is because forgiveness doesn't give you righteousness. All forgiveness does is remove unrighteousness. And how many of my sins were dealt with? All of them. When? When I confess them? No. On the cross. We have been forgiven. So the forgiveness doesn't lead to righteousness. Righteousness doesn't come through forgiveness. Another deception is the as if righteous. God looks at me as if I'm righteous. I'm not really righteous, but wink, wink, nudge, nudge, God's going to play a game and pretend that I'm righteous. That's really what it is. Do you think God's playing games here? He sent His Son to die. That's not a game. This isn't a game God's playing. You either are or you are not. Or another is, I'm only righteous in Christ. Which sounds really good, but remember, it's a deception wrapped in truth. And here's the deception in there. This idea that I'm, at times, not in Christ. You see, the reality is, you're only in Christ, and therefore you're only righteous. But we put the emphasis on the... You know, only when, as long as I'm in Christ. But the moment I'm not in Christ, then I'm not righteous anymore. But you're never not in Christ. So therefore, you're only righteous. Another deception is the blind spot theory. Or something similar to the filter theory. Where either God can't quite see me, or the you know, I'm filtered out with something, be it the cross or Jesus. And I just kind of sneak my way into heaven one day. And then when I'm there, you know, if I set up shop long enough, then God's got to let me stay. And I just got to hide from Him. Does that sound like the guy that knows all everything about you, even to down to the number of hairs on your head? That doesn't sound like he has a blind spot about you. That sounds like someone who knows you intimately and completely. And so, if he sees you and sees you completely, he knows you. And if he says you're righteous, you are what? You are righteous. Here's a popular one. It's a future but not present theory. Meaning, I'm not righteous today on earth, but when I get to heaven, then I'll be righteous. Well, suppose I'm a Christian, I've received Christ as my Savior, and on the way home tonight, I I get run off the road by a 40-ton cement truck, and I hit a light post, and I die instantly. But because I received Christ as my Savior, I then go to heaven, and now I'm righteous. Well, what is it about a 40-ton cement truck that can make me righteous that God couldn't do on the cross? Romans 3.21 But now, right this very instant now, the righteousness of God has been revealed to those who believe, apart from the works of the law. It's not a future thing. 
It's a but now, right now, you and I have the righteousness of Christ. Another one, this is very common amongst pastors, is they use the positional truth. Meaning, it's all, it's just a heavenly bookkeeping thing. Yes, God sees us as righteous. It is it is a, uh, imputed to us as righteousness up in heaven's books. But down here on earth, we're just not really righteous because it's just a positional truth. Well, here's one problem with that. God doesn't have just positional truth. God has truth. And truth is truth. And there's nothing in the verses that would say that it is a positional truth or, you know, a truth. Because it's just truth. The other problem with it is, were you and I just positionally a sinner? No, we were actually a sinner through and through, 100%. Well, the same verse that says you are made a sinner says that now in Christ you have been made, constituted from the very core out, righteous. You are righteous. It's not a positional thing. It's a reality thing. Robes of righteousness. This sounds really good because there's a verse in Isaiah that talks about wearing a robe of righteousness. So I'm unrighteous and God just covers me with the robe of righteousness. The problem is in in the Old Testament, a robe wasn't to cover up. The robe was like a name tag. So when a person would put on a robe, they were declaring who they were. So Joseph, he puts on his technicolor dream coat. And that's his way of saying, my father loves me. The, the prodigal son returns and father gives him the robe that was to declare, this is my son. Look at the robes he, he's wearing. So the robe is the name tag. So when God says, I'm going to put on you a robe of righteousness, what is he declaring to the world? You are righteous. It's not to cover up, it's to reveal who you are. And then finally, I'm righteous in God's eyes, which means I'm not righteous in my own eyes. The reality is, if you're not righteous in your own eyes, but righteous in your in God's eyes, then you have two things. One, you have higher standards than God, because He's declared you righteous, but you have not yet declared yourself righteous. And two, what Jesus did on the cross wasn't enough. Is that the reality? See, what was God's expectations? What was His requirements? For you to be perfect as He is perfect. And He accomplished that, hence the reason He declared you righteous. And you and I can't have higher standards than that. And the cross has accomplished it all. So you, to understand God right, God's righteousness of you, you can't help but declare you're righteous. If you don't, then you don't understand God's righteousness of you. Because the two go hand in hand. The two sides of the same coin. On page 35, you have a prayer of faith. And this prayer is just a simple prayer where we receive this gift of righteousness. So he says, this goes, Father, I admit that I have labored on a treadmill, trying to meet standards for acceptance, bearing fruit for death. I've been struggling, trying to live the holy life, but it's not working, just bearing fruit for death. So I thank you that when I was crucified with Messiah, you removed me from an achieving system and you placed me into a receiving system. I no longer have to achieve to my righteousness. I can now instead receive this gift of righteousness. So I do hereby accept the gift of righteousness, which is now my righteousness. When somebody gives you a gift, who does it belong to? Own that gift. Own that gift. This is a great gift. Own it. It's the heart of the gospel. For now, for now on, no matter what my feelings, memories, behaviors, the world or Satan tells me, I agree with your word that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus.
So here's a prayer, and you can sign it, and that way now you can't go back on it. If you turn the page, 35a, I think it is, in your notes, um, we have some scriptural implications of righteousness. And an implication is the result of righteousness. The first one is it actually keeps us from sinning. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 34, Awake to righteousness and stop your sinning, for some of you don't have the knowledge of God. If you could begin to see that you're righteous, guess how you're going to live? If I tell my little girls for the next three years they're nothing but, a, nothing but a bunch of little liars, what will they do when they get into trouble? They will lie. So God says, don't you know who you are? Or Paul says, don't you know who you are? You're righteous. Wake up to it and stop living this way. It actually leads to holiness. We often think of it the other way around. If I can live a righteous life, then I'll be holy. Well, righteousness leads to holiness. The more I understand the righteousness that I have, the more holy I begin to live. I know one man that I'm counseling, and he's beginning to see the fact that he's righteous and he's holy. And now as he's learning that, he now goes to work and he works hard, where before he used to just kind of fritter away the time. He doesn't want to speed anymore. He wants to obey the laws of the road. I didn't tell him to do all that. It's just now, because that's who he is. He's righteous. He now has a natural desire to do this stuff. It controls us. Or as one person says, you know, we become slaves to righteousness, blessed bondage. So righteousness actually begins to dictate how we live. Other things shall be added unto you. Now, remember this verse, Matthew six thirty three: Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Do you remember singing that song at all? I sang that song as a kid. I won't do it now. Don't worry. I used to think if I could somehow live a righteous life, then God would bless me. But that's not what the verse says. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these other things should be added unto you. See, what often happens in our life is we seek so many things. We seek to be happy. We might even seek to not sin. We might seek to not feel this way. We might seek to not struggle in some way. Good things to seek, but not the first thing to seek. Not the priority. God says the priority is seek ye first his righteousness. So if you had a list of what you wanted to stop doing, not going to the strip club, not drinking, not doing drugs, stop cheating on my taxes, and that was your list of things to stop, and then you looked at God's list for you, right at the top is, seek His righteousness. And when you do that, guess what's going to happen to the rest of the list? It sorts itself out. So it starts with understanding your righteousness. And God's more interested in you knowing that your righteousness is based on Him than based on your performance. And so He's okay with you messing up and failing if it leads you to coming to discover that your righteousness is not in you, but in Him. Our prayer life becomes effective. My, my prayer life was very poor. I told you the first night about my concept of God that He was you know, one that was out to get me waiting to strike me down and hurt me. That was my vision and concept of God. So when I was caught in some kind of a sin, did I want to go talk to God? No. So I ran from God, tried to maybe sort it out, or at least maybe lay low until it blows over, and then I'd go talk to God. But now God's my daddy. God's now the one I can go run to and jump up onto His lap and and be loved by Him. So I'm not afraid to go to Him anymore. I want to go to Him. 
And not only that, now, when I go to Him, my prayers are different. Before the prayers were, Lord, how do I become more acceptable? But God got out of that business 2,000 years ago. He's already made you acceptable. And He's thinking, you know, I've got some other plans that we could do. So now my prayers aren't, Lord, here's my plan to make me righteous and acceptable and healthy and pure. Instead, Lord, what do you want to do today? He says, great, I'm glad you asked. I've got this idea. What do you think of this? And now I'm living out of whose will? His. And I've discovered that His will is far more effective than mine. There will be peace, quietness, and confidence. I don't think there's anyone here that wants any more peace, quietness, and confidence. Is there anyone that wants some peace, quietness, confidence? The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. It says in Isaiah thirty-two seventeen. You begin to rest. My wife and I have noticed that a bride is never more beautiful than the days after her wedding. More so than just on the wedding, the days after her wedding, she's more beautiful. The reason being is because on that wedding day, that man now actually proved his love for her. It was one thing to commit to getting married, but the actual wedding day, he made the commitment. And on that day, she now knew, somebody loves me. I'm loved. And now there's this glowing, there's this confidence about her, and she's far more beautiful. Sadness is, life sets in, and that begins to fade and so forth. But for that brief moment, she had this confidence and this quietness because she knew she was loved. When you come to see that you are loved by Jesus, there is great confidence. I love the Gospel of John for many reasons, one of which is that the Gospel of John, in the Gospel of John, at the beginning he calls himself John, which makes sense because that's his name. But at the end of the Gospel, how does he refer to himself? The one whom Jesus loves. That blows my mind. That, that still, no matter how many times I think about that, still gives me chills to think about. Because if John were to walk through this door, and we say, John, uh, you have to go and put a name tag on. I don't think he would write John on his name tag. I don't think he would say, I was one of the original disciples. One of the inner three. One of the original apostles who witnessed the signs and wonders of Jesus. He wouldn't write, I was the only disciple not to abandon Jesus. He wouldn't write that he was the second most prolific writer of the New Testament. Or even that he'd perform signs, miracles, and wonders himself. You know what he would write on his name tag? I'm the one who Jesus loves. How do you hurt that person? John, I think you're ugly. I think you're a fool. I think you're dumb. And I think your writing sucks. And I'm going to kick you in the shins just for that. You know what I think he would say? I'm sorry you feel that way. But I'm loved by Jesus. You can't rob me of that. You can't take that away from me. I am loved by Jesus. That's who you are. And that's where our peace, quietness, and confidence comes from. We're able now to accept others. See, why am I acceptable to me? Not because of what I've done. So why are other people acceptable? Not because of what they do or don't do because God loves them, will dictate a diligent response. Has anyone like me said something and then wished they could somehow remove the foot that's now jammed in their mouth? That was me. It is me. I'm still learning this lesson. In fact, I think I learned this lesson sometime this week about needing to make a diligent response. 
And now I'm learning because now when someone asks the question, I can go run to Father and say, Father, what, what do you want to say in response? Rather than just blurting out the first thing that comes to my mind. Now here's the key. We must avoid the performance trap. Suppose you hear this and all excited about how righteous you are and holy you are and you're so excited and you're driving home this afternoon and then that 40-ton cement truck that ran me off the road almost runs you off the road and before you know it, a curse word pops out of your mouth and you give him the Hawaiian signal for hello. Middle finger. There's no one from Hawaii here, so I figured that was safe. So uh, you, you curse and you swear at this driver and then immediately Satan starts popping into your head and saying, Really? I thought you were righteous. Look at you. Guess you're not that righteous at all. What I've done is I've fallen into the same performance trap is now that I'm righteous, I have to always act righteous. The reality is you are a saint that sometimes sins. But that doesn't change the fact that you're a saint. And so don't fall into the performance trap. Failure will occur. It's not that it might occur. Failure will occur. The righteous man may fall seven times, but he will rise again, Proverbs 24, 6 says. I love Ecclesiastes 7.20 because it says that there is not a righteous man who never sins and does and continually does good. Meaning, what will a righteous man do? He will sin. But what is he still? Righteous. My youngest face, she's now just over one year old, and, and I remember watching her walk. What a great moment that is as a parent to watch your child to stand and wobble and then topple, <laughs> fall down. And then they get up and then they take that one step. They're not holding anything. They take that one step. And you're all excited. And then what happens? They fall down on that nice cushy diaper, right? And as parents, your reaction is what? I can't believe you fell, you ignorant little child. You slap them and then you say, get back, start crawling, get that right. Is that what you guys did? Oh dear. (laughs) We didn't do that either. That's ridiculous. What did you do? What did you say when that child took that one step? You walked. You took a step. Way to go. Get up. Keep walking. You don't have to go back to the beginning. God's more excited about the fact you took a step of faith. Get up. Keep going. You don't go back to square one. So when when you make bad choices and you're reaping the bad consequences, Father's there to use them to teach us to start walking and trusting Him now. So you made a bad choice. This is what we can do to rectify. This is what we can do to change things. Will you trust me to do that? Okay. And there's no condemnation. There's no beating me down. There's conviction. Guilt in that sense is great, but there isn't that shame and condemnation that the devil likes to to pawn off on us. No longer be stubborn. Nobody here like that. But listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, you who are far from righteousness. When you begin to see you're righteous, then you realize that, Lord, this is your deal. I don't have to fight and make people do stuff, and I don't have to be a stubborn. We'll be satisfied in life. The righteous eat to their heart's content. The reason what this means is that when I know that I'm loved by Jesus, what else matters? I'm, I'm content with that. You may hate me. You may think I'm an idiot and a fool. But I'm loved by Jesus. And so I'm content. We'll begin to bear the fruit of the tree of life because Jesus is living through us. 
and we'll begin to speak life towards others because it's the life of Jesus living through us. These are the results, the implications of righteousness. But there's some practical implications. And I love this picture. And again, I'm a young father. I've got four girls, six and under. And so I, I get this. I understand this picture. This is a picture of a father and his baby. Any guesses on how old this baby is? Four, five, six months. Still got the nice chubby legs. You know what a five, six month old baby does? They scream. Wake you up at night. As happened even with a one year old. Uh, they poop their diaper. They make messes. They scream and they spit up on your clothes. They poop. Did I mention screaming in the middle of the night? This is what they do. They don't really contribute a whole lot to the function of the house. They don't help out a whole lot. They just tend to cause a lot of work. And yet, even though this is a silhouette, you can see the smile of the father as he stares into the eyes of his child. This child is the one he loves. You know, it took me a couple years before I even noticed there's a beautiful sunset in the background. People wait all their lives to see sunsets like this. And this guy couldn't care less. Because where are his eyes? On his precious child. That's your daddy. That's you. That's me. And what's so great now is I have real intimacy with my father. We put it under practical implications, but I think really all of Scripture speaks to this. I know Him now. Not perfectly. I can't wait to know Him more. I haven't arrived yet. But I'm learning to know Him. I'm learning to trust Him. I'm learning to walk in Him. And now I have real intimacy with my Daddy. With my Father. Not only that, I can risk rejection. I can risk failure. See, I'm an engineer by training. That's my background. That's the way my mind thinks. That's the way I process things. And with engineers, if you know anything about engineers, here's the one thing you need to know. Engineers should not work with people. They just, they're not people people. Uh, engineers should be computer people. Sit them in front of a computer, analyze, design, fix stuff in a nice dark cave, separated from people. That's the safest place for an engineer to be. Well, God has asked me to leave that safety of the cave of not dealing with people. And he now puts me here where my job is to deal with people. I am not a people person. I am an introvert of introverts. And here is God saying, go and talk with people. Go and share life with people. And I say, Lord, that's, that's awfully scary. I, I, I could fail and they could reject me. Oh, silly, silly son. It's not a can. They will. (laughs) Well, that's really helping God. But even if they do, I love you, don't you? Don't I? Well, I guess you do. I guess you do love me. And so if you hate me, you reject me, you spit on me, don't kick my shins, but if you do, don't spit on me either, but if you do, I'm the one whom Jesus loves. I am righteous. And it's not because I've taught today. It's not because I prayed today. It's not because I read Scripture today. It's because Jesus died on that cross 
put me into Him, buried us, and then rose again as new creations. New people. Holy and righteous in Christ. That's who you are today, right now. So pride is no longer an issue. It may sound a bit shocking that saying I'm the holiest person in the face of the earth is not shock, is not proudful, but the reality is why am I holy? It has nothing to do with me, but everything to do with Christ. If you declare right now that you are not holy as a Christian and you're not righteous, you are full of pride because you are declaring you can do something to become righteous. You are trying to add to the finished work of Christ. And I don't know if there's anything more arrogant than that. So pride is no longer an issue. I have real rest in the middle of activity. Real rest. I, am, I can't believe how busy things are right now. But I'm resting because it's not resting from work, but now I get a work from rest because I have the life of Christ experienced through me. And it's unlimited service, not just what's comfortable. This engineer can get up and talk to people and share the gospel and the good news of, of the, the message of the cross because it's not I, but Christ who lives in me. Now, Father is interested in my behavior and He's faithful to discipline because He loves me. If He didn't love me, He wouldn't care about my behavior, but because He does love me, He does care about my behavior and He will discipline me. When I sin, He will talk to me about it. But my behavior doesn't make me more or less acceptable to Him. can't add to it. And I can't subtract from it. So how righteous are you? You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, as righteous as He is today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this truth of being righteous really never gets old. The knowledge that You love us, that You accept us, that is not something where we earn, but something that You are freely giving to us. Father, will You convict us? Convict us of all the ways and methods that we've been trying to get righteous, that we've been trying to be pleasing to You, that we've been trying to earn acceptance from You, to show us that that's not the way. That this is not another formula and program to live to find something. Instead, it's a relationship where You have given to us everything we need. And we can receive it particularly this gift of righteousness. So Father, continue to speak to us, convict us of this truth, that we might walk in freedom and be who You've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.